The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 347. I'm here with uh, Reverend Kurt Cooper. Kurt, it's been a while. How's it going? I'm in charge here, Sean. That was a little joke uh, from pre-recording a conversation. Uh, It's going good. It's going good. But when we were getting ready to record, John was like, there's a lot going on in my life, so I'm going to need you to dominate this. He he used the word dominate. Dominate this podcast. And I was like... (laughs) I don't know what really what that looks like, but all right, here we go. So that was my attempt <laughs> at domination, my feeble well, attempt at domination. John, it's going well. It's good to be back with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I figured when I used the word dominate with Kurt Cooper, it was going to be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> so Kurt, look, it's good to have you back. It's been a while since you've been on. I want to say maybe the the first one of these, but I can't remember. Everything's kind of running together since I've got a lot of co-hosts coming on the show, um, helping out. And uh, again, just to let people know, um, we're going to be talking about youth room essentials. And I really gave Kurt all of one minute to think about this, Uh, but we're continuing our our discussion with youth room essentials. We actually had somebody, uh, I guess we can say call in our, our tech technology for the show is not that advanced, but we have somebody who's going to call in and um, be a part of this uh, youth room essentials. Uh, so that will be next week. But Kurt, um, when you think about essentials of a youth room, you know, outside of the Bible, we would say Bibles are necessary in every youth room. Um, what are some things you would say are essentials of a youth room? I can't wait to hear what you're going to well, say. Um, I guess my first question is, I listened to the episode where Chris Holland talked about pictures, mm-hmm. okay, um, which I thought was a really good answer, maybe the best answer Ooh, for, shot, for this question. Fired, maybe. Um, yeah, but um, but so I like that one. I like that answer, mm-hmm. and I, I, I kind of want to like steal it or say, well, that's that's the right answer. But I'll say this. Um, I've never served at a church that had a gym. Okay. That had, I know this is not my youth room essential as a gym. Okay. Mm-hmm. Although, so I've always been kind of covetous of churches that have gyms, just to be totally honest. I've, I've always been a little covetous of those churches. Um, but I guess I will say, I guess I will say a ping pong table. Um, as a, and I guess the reason is, is because ping pong is one of those, if I dare call it a sport, it's one of those mildly athletic activities where even if you're an old washed up youth minister like me, you can still kind of compete with the kids, you know, as long as you don't have like a really good tennis player on in your youth group, you can kind of compete with the kids a little bit uh, at ping pong. Right. And some of them are like not very good. And, um, and so I guess, I guess I have to say a, a ping pong table. It's a, we play when our ping pong table is up and running in our youth room, which it hasn't been in a while. Um, it's been kind of in a corner and no one's really been using it, but when it's really going on a Wednesday night, um, 
it uh, we play first to five points. So we play really quickly at games and people are like cycling in and out mm. and, and, you know, some, maybe someone can get some good run and be on there for a little while. Um, whenever it's me that I, I like to talk a lot of trash, um, not surprisingly. <laughs> Shocker. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and that, that can be, uh, that can be really fun. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I'd say ping pong table, it provides a lot of like, in that before ministry time, before your program really begins, when people are hanging out, it's easy to just sit and talk. Some before I was a youth minister, some of my best conversations have happened around a ping pong table. So I'm gonna go ahead and say ping pong table is a top notch youth room accoutrement. <laughs> no, that, that's a good one. Um, and that kind of, you know, I think of what Linda was talking about of kind of having an activity, giving students something to do when they arrive. And so I think things like that, like a ping pong table are important. They're accomplishing more than just like the game and something we used to do, Kurt, uh, with, with our ping pong table. Did you ever play around the world? I think is what it's called. Um, right now, you, well, hold on. Is around the world where you run around, where everyone's running around the table hitting? Yes. No, we call that, we call that sting pong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We wouldn't do that to where you'd like lift up your shirt and get to hit somebody. Well, we don't, we would not lift up the shirt, but we would still let people take shots. Yeah. Um, so that, but that was like more of like an all boys activity. Yeah. Um, and that's why uh, we would we, around the world, uh, you can have, it seems like, you know, 20 or 30 students. And so you're, you're all kind of, you take a turn hitting and then you put the paddle down and then you hand it off to the next person. And I know there's yeah. different variations of it, but I say that to say that, you can have, you can use, utilize a ping pong table with, you know, 20 plus students. So it's not just two people playing or then, you know, doubles, four people playing. You can actually utilize that to involve more of the group. And so, you know, if anyone's out there thinking, oh, well, I'm not really good at ping pong or it just kind of isolates, you know, some people No, you can actually utilize it to play some other games and involve more people. And, you know, it's something like around the world, you don't have to be that skilled because you're not, you know, putting a lot of spin on it or even slamming all the time. I know some people would in this game, but it can involve a lot more people. Um, so Kurt, mm -hmm. look, I think that's a good one, especially with not a lot of time to, to think about it. Just uh, the importance of having some kind of activity uh, to involve students, I think is, is great. And, and having something like a ping pong table uh, in your room can do that. Um, Kurt, I know there's more that we could say about that, but I know we need to uh, transition to our technically speaking um, section of the the episode and Kurt, I guess, you know, I don't think you've been on maybe since we've had the technically speaking, but you came up with the name of technically speaking for this segment. Um, so yes. And, and now I want to change it to what the tech, but anyway, what is the, you know, as we come on, you can have different variations of the name, but, but I'm excited to have Jason Thacker with us today. Uh, Kurt is actually going to be in on that interview. We're going to have Jason Thacker on for the next, um, few weeks and uh, Jason serves as the chair of research and technology ethics and leads the ERLC research Institute. And that's ethics of religious Liberty commission. Um, he writes and speaks on various topics, including human dignity, ethics, public theology, technology, digital governance, and artificial intelligence. Uh, those who listen to the podcast know that he came on episode 316 uh, to talk about his book, The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. 
Uh, I definitely encourage everyone to pick that book up. Um, he's a graduate of the University of Tennessee, and he's uh, working on a PhD in Christian ethics and public theology, which I know we'll talk to him a little bit more about today. Uh, but with that being said, uh, here's Jason. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Jason, I, I introduced you and the, your work that you do at the ERLC, um, but why don't you just explain a little bit more uh, for us? I mean, it sounds like you do a whole lot there, and, and I know I kind of need things dumbed down a little bit, so maybe <laughs> explain a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so we're the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, which basically means we are not only interfacing with government in terms of advocating before the courts, the administration and Congress, but we also are helping to equip the church to live out her faith in public in every aspect of life, whether that's in the public square, whether it's in technology and social media, issues of religious liberty, issues of biblical justice or human dignity or marriage and sexuality. So basically all of the things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table over holiday is basically our entire job. Um, our job is to equip the church to be living out our faith and really living out the gospel message in every single aspect of our life. And that's really the heart of Christian ethics. And that's where I focus. So I'm doing more of the research at ERLC, doing a lot of writing and publishing podcasts, book writing, et cetera, uh, to provide resources for the local church to, to live the mission that God's called her to. Awesome. And I like how you said that all the things you're not supposed to talk about <laughs> at the dinner <laughs> table. Um, but that, that's a lot, that's a lot there. Um, and I'm excited yeah. to have you back on the podcast, but I know Kurt, uh, he's all, all, also with us um, and will yeah. be with us over the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, but he Is had that, something prepared. No, no, that's not what I had prepared. I just, when he said that about uh, Jason, when you say that about the stuff that you're not supposed to talk about uh, if you spend all your time, you know, advocating in these areas do you find it hard to turn that off like in you know like at thanksgiving dinner for instance you know what i mean like you see you're like the expert on the things that <laughs> you know kind of blow up thanksgiving dinner does that ever happen to you or is that you know i would like to say that it doesn't but uh my wife would beg to differ um, i have been kicked <laughs> under the table or punched or given a glare a couple times so if you're not entering this conversation um, yeah. And things like that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these ethical issues are things that are very divisive in our culture. And we all know mm -hmm. that. Um, and it's one of those things that this is where we spend our entire life is kind of engaging and working on these issues because these things matter. Um, it's not something that we can avoid. It's something we have to enter into as the church and engage these really important issues, but they do become pretty contentious. Uh, so you make a lot of friends in this line of work um, mm -hmm. because you're either not, you're not going far enough or you're stopping short or you're going too far. Uh, really just to kind of depends on someone's perspective. But um, the goal of this is just to help people think biblically and wisely uh, to mm -hmm. use biblical wisdom in every single aspect of life, including the way that we live that in public. Mm, yeah. And it's funny how Kurt mentioned the, the Thanksgiving uh, dinner table as well. Uh, my mind went there. It's so funny that we always think Thanksgiving and that's the time where we're going to be discussing things that are, that can be divisive, as you said. Um, and look, I know we're going to get into uh, some of these issues surrounding technology. And uh, again, just to remind our readers, you spent a lot of time in artificial intelligence and telling everybody to go check out your book. But Kurt also had something I know he wanted to to ask you, and I think it might be a little bit on the lighthearted side. So I oh, have, sure. no, I was just I have no idea where this is going. 
No, I was just going to say, there is a rumor out there, Jason. I know that you went to the University of Tennessee, and there's a rumor out there that you were the one that threw mustard at Lane Kiffin. Is it true or is it false? I need you to <laughs> confirm and deny that right now. I'll definitely deny that, but I will have to admit, and I can say this publicly, I, I did light the rock on fire um, at the <laughs> University of Tennessee. We have a very large rock. little yeah. fun story. The rock used to be underneath our church. Um, our wow. church was built on the rock, literally, at the University of Tennessee <laughs> before it moved. But they stood this rock up, and um, it's for listeners' sake, do not do that. You actually are, you will get arrested uh, for doing something like that. And so, long story short, uh, I have a rap and a long, a long record there. But uh, wow. the university was very kind and let me hmm. pay penance. So, okay. Wow. Man, I did not see this interview going in this direction. Uh, but for those who are listening and have no idea, what Kurt is talking about, just, just YouTube, the Ole Miss Tennessee game from this past year. And, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, some of what's being discussed. So look, um, with that aside, uh, let's talk a little bit more about technology. Um, Jason, why don't you start off just kind of telling us uh, what is technology? I know you said you're doing some work um, research right now, um, kind of answering this question, digging into this, but why don't you also tell us a little bit about that work that you're, you're doing? I know there's a forthcoming book with several contributors involved, so just give us a little bit of a peek behind the scenes there. Yeah, I think often when we talk about technology, especially I, I learned this when, we, when I started writing about artificial intelligence. Most people think when you say technology or something, especially like AI, is it seems so futuristic and far off. It's always at arm's length. It's not something we really have to deal with or talk about. But even in the last year or so, I've noticed a change in a lot of our conversations about technology, whether it was the Facebook papers and kind of the, the uh, news about the way Instagram is uh, hurting teenage girls or the way that technology is forming our young people or the way it's kind of deforming our mind and kind of warping the way that we see the nature of truth or the nature of community or even understanding of ourselves, I started to say, when we talk about technology, we often focus on, well, I need a technical fix. And I think it's a little ironic. There's a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher that said, we just need more technology to solve the problems that technology itself introduced. Mm -hmm. So we have this problem of social media. We just need better moderation. We just need better apps. We just need screen time apps. We need better habits. And what kind of app can help me have a better habit? And so it's funny to me in some sense that we have all these problems with technology, these questions with technology, and we just kind of default to the technical means. We look for another app, another system, another uh, website or another tip trick or blog. And so what I wanted to do, it, it caused me to say, let's slow down a little bit because the nature of technology is it wants us to go faster, better, and stronger and quicker. It's always pushing us forward. And as Christians, biblical wisdom calls us to sometimes slow down and ask the really hard questions. Sometimes the questions we don't want to ask, not only of, you know, what does God say about this? Who are we as human beings? And then also how we're to interact with the world around us. And one of the big questions is what is technology? And I think we just kind of assume, because I've asked my students before, I say, what is technology? And like, oh, smartphones, cameras, Zoom, podcast, microphones, you know, AI, robots, all of these things. And they say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about that. And you're like, yeah, it doesn't actually mention AI. You can go to your concordance and it has nothing to do with social media. It has nothing to do with artificial intelligence because the words aren't there, but the principles are. And that's one of the really interesting things in this conversation about technology and specifically social media is that the Bible is 
full. It's like a whole, the whole Bible is interacting with the world around us and people are using tools Mm -hmm. and they're using technology from the very beginning of time. And so when we start to think about it in those categories and ask some of these more, sometimes more philosophical or fundamental type questions, basic questions of what is technology, I think we see it's not just a tool. It's not just something we use is the way we like to think about it, especially in the church, is that it's something more than that. Uh, There's something kind of a larger force. There's larger kind of um, mentality to technology and that we technicize or we see technology incorporated into every single aspect of our life. I mean, we're sitting here on this podcast and I have an Apple watch on. I have my phone right next to me as well as a computer in front of me. I have a smart thermostat a few feet away from me that's controlling the air temperature in our house, you know. Listeners probably have multiple technological devices all around them at all times. And it's just funny to me, this is the world we inhabit. And so we can't push these things off as this kind of far off futuristic thing that we'll deal with one day mm-hmm. is that we're already being, being shaped and formed to use the language of discipleship is our, we're already being discipled by our technologies. They're pushing us to use them in certain ways. They're altering the way that we think about the nature of God, who we are in the world around us. And so I think it's high time for the, for the church and for Christians to slow down and to ask some of these fundamental questions, like what is technology and how is it forming and shaping and discipling us each and every day? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm going to ask you, but it, the way that you talk about it, it kind of reminds me of... Um, of Genesis 11 uh, and the tower of Babel where yeah. they're building this tower and they say, come, uh, I've got it right here. I just opened up to us. It said, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. And it, the way that you're talking about how we view technology kind of reminds me of the way in which the people in Genesis 11 are talking about that tower as if uh, it also kind of reminds me of the silly commercials you see on television where Uh, We create a problem in order to solve the problem, right? Like I can't handle a remote and a blanket at the same time. I'm so uncoordinated. So I need a Snuggie, right? Like that. (laughs) Um, But is that, I don't want to say that you're saying that unless you are, but that's what I'm hearing is, is, am I, am I right there? Yeah. I mean, at post Genesis three, so post the fall and the introduction of sin, it warped every single aspect of our life. Not only the way we see God, the way we see ourselves and the world around us, And so in many ways, it's not that technology itself, a lot of times you'll hear, and this is right, that technology isn't neutral. We hear, we often say, well, it's just neutral. It's just the way I use it. The phone isn't good or bad, right? And that's true in some sense. It's not morally responsible or accountable to God as we are as image bearers, but there's something different about it. It's not neutral because it is pushing us to use it in a certain way. And in our sin, we seek to use these things for our own glory. We focus on ourselves rather than honoring God, you know, as Jesus says in Matthew 22, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. And so I think Genesis 11 is a really great example, and there's a plethora of those examples, even at Genesis 5, where you see Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain is using a tool to take his brother's life. Uh, many, many commentators will say that it was either a rock or some type of tool that he used to kill and slay his brother. And what he's doing is he's using technology, the technology, primitive technologies of his day, 
in order to focus on himself and to be, he's the center of the universe. And I think that's one of the important things when we as Christians engage technology in general, we just know it isn't about us. It isn't about making a name for ourselves as they talk about in Genesis 11. It's focusing on glorifying God, ultimately summed up in Jesus' words of love God and love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you gotta really appreciate the brazenness of Cain. That an all all knowing God was like, "Hey, where's your brother?" And Cain's like, "Oh, I don't know." Somewhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, Cain. Okay. Um, now, uh, I have a question, and I don't know, John. Do we need to wait for our no, next? No, we've got a little bit more time. So yeah, go ahead and ask. Well, um, I just had a question about one thing that's come up a lot with technology is privacy. Yeah. Okay. And I'm a little conflicted about how, and I bet you have some wisdom on this, about how to think about privacy in the digital age. Because in one sense, Christians are called to live in the light, to Mm -hmm. not, you know, and people avoid, Christ came to the world, he's the light of the world, but people ran from the light because he exposed their evil deeds, their deeds are evil. So, and we want to live in the light, okay? And that seems to be kind of like an anti-privacy mindset, right? Uh, What, we don't want to hide anything. At the same time, we're also told to pray in secret, right? Yeah. We're sort of not to pray where everyone can see us like the Pharisees, but to go and to pray on our own in private. And also Jesus made it his practice uh, to be alone with God. And you can't, you know, without privacy, that's not possible, right? So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I don't know how to, as a youth minister, I'm never really sure how to engage that topic, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to thread that line, if you will, or thread that needle. So. Yeah, so I, I have a lot to say on that, and I'll, I'll hold back intentionally because of time's sake. Um, but this is really the focus, major focus of my work for the next two to three years. Uh, this is the focus of my dissertation is what is a, a moral right to privacy look like from a Christian perspective? And I think because often when our culture talks about privacy, it's not the way that we see the Bible talking about privacy. Privacy in our kind of secular age is all about me, my autonomy, my freedom to do whatever I want, and no one can tell me otherwise. And even in a lot of times, in a lot of uh, questions around privacy in the modern age, is that it's tied to issues of abortion, even. Even the infamous Roe v. Wade decision was actually a privacy decision, uh, that these women have the ability, they have privacy, that the government can't interfere into their private lives and the decisions they make on that front. And so we have to, as Christians, we kind of have to reframe what is privacy. And you're exactly right, Kurt. And I think that's a wonderful kind of parallel thing of God knows all things. Not only are we called to live in the light, but our God is completely sovereign and omnipotent. And he knows all things. Uh, there's nothing. I mean, I love how the scriptures talk about, especially in the gospels, about how Christ knows every hair on our head, especially the gray ones on my head, uh, or at least the ones that are starting to come up. He knows every single hair on our head. He knows every single detail of our life, whether we want him to or not. We don't actually have privacy in that sense with the Lord. But at the same time, we live in a broken world. And we know that especially with data and the things that are collected on us each day, Um, can be used for nefarious or dangerous purposes. They're going to be used. They're going to be used and abused and manipulated and exploited uh, to gain power over other people or to exploit them or to make them vulnerable and to take advantage of them. And so I think as Christians, we kind of have to have this kind of almost dualistic approach of understanding that we don't really have privacy before God. In that sense, we're fully exposed and God knows us better than we even know ourselves But at the same time, in a broken world, 
we don't have perfect relationships with one another. So whether it's a technology company that's gathering this data on us to shift and alter the way we see things or to encourage us to certain type of behaviors, which is really, really common right now, especially in shopping and marketing, but even data being used and exploited by governments um, in terms of facial recognition technology or to suppress certain types of people. We see this all around the world, especially in China right now. So it's, it's, especially like a Christian notion of privacy is God-centered rather than man-centered, which I think is kind of the first thing we have to talk about is God-centered versus man-centered. And then two, it's almost a necessary thing in the midst of a broken and sinful world. And so we are individuals. We do have a private life as Christ calls us to pray in public, or excuse me, to pray in private, to have a private relationship with the Lord. But at the same time, we don't just expose everything about our lives to everyone around us because that will be used and abused. It will be manipulated. It will be used to exploit us and to exploit others. Um, so I think we kind of have to hold those things in tension in some sense, but understanding, and this is really where the thrust of my research is, is that kind of God-centric versus man-centric understanding of privacy. It isn't about your autonomy. It isn't about your freedom. It's more about our, our dependence upon a holy God. Hmm. Jason, that's really good. And uh, obviously everything you just said, there's so much more to talk about, um, which is good that we'll have you back next week and then the following as well. Um, so Jason, thanks for being with us. Looking forward to, to digging in more with you. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. That was Jason. He is going to be with us again next week and the following uh, talking more about uh, technology. Uh, for now, we have got uh, Reverend Brent Corbin with us. Uh, he is the new uh, executive director of RYM. Um, technically at the time of this recording, he is not full-time. He'll be coming on in, in May. And so uh, we thought it'd be great to have our listeners get to meet Brent and get to hear a little bit more about him and his background. And, and uh, I know hopefully he'll be on again in the future, but this is just a brief introduction of, of Brent and uh, talking a little bit about his background as well as the ministry. Uh, so here he is. Brent, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. So glad to be here. Yeah, glad we were able to um, connect. I know you've got a lot going on in your world as you're coming on as the executive director for RYM, but you're still um, on staff with RUF. So trying to, to kind of balance those things in transition and we'll get into some of that. Um, but first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about wh where you grew up, family, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, thanks. So I grew up in uh, a small town in Oklahoma, uh, a town called Duncan. And it's uh, the, the population of Duncan is directly proportional to uh, the price of oil. Uh, when the oil business is good, the town swells with a lot of activity. And when it's down, it contracts. So uh, a true boom and bust cycle. Um, so my dad was, uh, is, was involved in the oil business kind of on a, uh, a pretty blue collar level. Um, it was a family business that he stepped into out of college. So uh, both he and my mom are from Texas. My dad grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas. My mom was from Amarillo, Texas, and they moved to Duncan and have lived uh, there since uh, the 70s. Actually, they still live in the house that I grew up in, and uh, my dad is still working in the oil business. Uh, he's 70, just turned 70. Uh, we're trying to facilitate an exit for him, but mm -hmm. Um, nobody wants to do what he does. It's really, really hard work and it doesn't, 
you can do a lot easier work and get paid a lot more these days. Uh, so uh, trying to get him, trying to get him bought out has been, um, I, I've been trying to market his business for him and all this stuff. And man, it's been tough. So when you say facilitate an exit, is this something he's ready to, to be done with as well? Or are you guys yeah, trying yeah. to kind of force him out? Yeah, he is. I mean, I, I think it's the classic, uh, you know, person who's just only known work his whole adult life. Like sure. what, do I, what am I going to do with my time? But I think, I think he's at the place where he wants to be done and is interested in asking the question, what, what can I do with my time as opposed to uh, just having to get up every day? I mean, it's, it's a small business. It's him and uh, one other person. And so, you know, if, if he leaves town, which he'll take maybe a week or maybe two weeks of vacation a year, if he leaves town, the, the thing kind of just comes to a halt. So um Anyway, he, he's ready. And my mom is beyond, uh, beyond him being ready. Uh, she's ready, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and t- tell me too, siblings. I'm, I'm trying to yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Brothers. So, um, I did. I've, I've got one older brother, one young, younger brother. Uh, they both live with their families in Oklahoma City. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess I didn't even talk about anything beyond that. Well, I, I interrupted you as well. So I got you off track. That's what it is. Right, your fault. I forgive you. Um, so uh, I went to went to college at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, and uh, I studied finance in Spanish. And um, I I really that wasn't a very calculated effort to go to OU. I just I wanted to go to a school that had you know a big football program and all that stuff. So uh, and we hadn't saved a lot of money <laughs> for college, so I knew I wasn't going to go anywhere too uh, grand. But I uh, went to OU and loved it. And um, it was a great experience. Uh, I came out of college and got um, the kind of job that I would have wanted going in. I, I went into um, into oil and gas banking. So I worked for a big uh, commercial bank. I was doing uh, financial analysis and underwriting for a big energy lending group. And so, um, and again, that's the thing that I thought that I was going to do um, just for the rest of my life. And I got about a year into it and uh, I, I just realized this is not, <laughs> I realized pretty quickly, this is not who I am. I'm, I mean, I could do it. It was work and it was meaningful work, but I really wanted to be with people. Um, I had really uh, had done a fair amount of ministry stuff in college, had been involved in some different groups. Um, and then RUF had started at OU when I was a junior. I didn't know anything about reformed faith or, you know, RUF or any of that stuff of which I've been neck deep for the last 20 years or so. Um, but I, I got really involved and then I ended up being an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt for a few years. And that's where I met my wife in out in Nashville. She was in physical therapy school at Belmont and um, she had come there, uh, grew up in Louisiana. She went to undergrad at Baylor and then grad school there at Belmont. Uh, we met uh, she fell in love with me. I eventually capitulated. <laughs> uh, we dated, got engaged, got married, uh, lived in Nashville a little while longer while she finished up. And then we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where uh, I started going to seminary and she started her first job as a physical therapist. Um, we were there for three and a half years while I did school. And um, we ended up having one child while we were in seminary. And then we kind of juggled that. She was still working and I was going to school. And then from Charlotte to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where 
you probably want to ask some of these questions. I'm just like no, rolling. This is great. Right? No, this is this is exactly what I, yeah, okay. I wanted to hear. Uh, so I moved to Tulsa. Uh, I, be, I received my first call there to be the RUF campus minister at University of Tulsa and uh, was there for eight years before uh, I was approached about becoming an area coordinator with RUF. And so uh, an area coordinator just oversees uh, a number of kind of uh, presbyteries and, and uh, states as it is often. Uh, so I was an area coordinator and have been doing this for the last four years since 2018. So. Um, and and yeah. tell me, to, which states are you ever as a, yep. as area coordinator? Yep. Yep. So uh, I'm over Oklahoma, Arkansas, West Tennessee, which is just Memphis area at this point, And then Mississippi and Louisiana. So right. uh, there's five presbyteries that that covers um but yeah for four and a half states all right now that yeah there's a lot kind of going back a little bit i know one thing you mentioned was ruf at oklahoma um and you and i had a little bit of a conversation that there's a musical group uh called where are my pants that came out of ruf at oklahoma yeah. I know it's known for a few things but why don't you tell us a little bit about that uh that group yeah uh so some of my uh what ended up being my really good friends in college they had preceded me in their involvement in RUF and, you know, just college type fun. They had gotten together and they were making funny, silly music together uh, around all kinds of topics. I mean, it's it's as wide ranging as you can imagine. Uh, they have a song called Calvinism where, you know, a lot of us were like coming into all these ideas about, you know, Calvinism and reform theology and all this stuff. So it was, you know, cage stage Calvinist stuff. Um, so they wrote a hilarious song about that. They wrote a song about uh, going on a Coke date, which is was kind of what what people did in college when I was there, kind of a first date. Uh, you go to this certain drive through Coke place and get a Coke. And then um, another song about sorority girls. Um, several of them were working as houseboys in a sorority, which mean they were just serving meals and, and cleaning up after. So again, bizarre type stuff. So I wasn't, I wasn't officially a band member. I had some cameos and some of the songs uh, I filled in at a few conferences when they would go out and play. Um, but I wasn't a mainstay of, of the group, but I very much rode their coattails and all their infamy. So it was, nice. it was a lot of fun. Um, they ended up playing it just RUF conferences, regional conferences, summer conference, that kind of stuff. So, and I know one went on to be a senior, current senior pastor. Any yeah, others yeah. That, that ended up in ministry? <laughs> um, so Matt Howell was the uh, lead singer. Uh, he was the wildest man of the group. Um, so Matt was a campus minister for a long time with RUF, and he's now the senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in Memphis. A uh, couple of the other guys are are elders in churches, but nobody else. Uh, went the ministry route. Uh, Blake Simonson is in Fort Worth, Texas. Russ Edwards is in Charlottesville, Virginia. Clint Rule is in, uh, he's in the Pacific Northwest, I think in Seattle or outside of Seattle. So. All right. Some shout outs there as well. Yeah, um, well. I guess any music on Spotify people can check out from Where Are My Pants? Uh, I, I think it's on the dark web at this point. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's uh, widely distributed. Yeah, people can go Google and look for that, but also at the same time, be careful as you're Googling, where are my pants? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no doubt. Um, buyer, buyer beware on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But jumping back to in your, your story a little bit, I'm curious if you grew up in the church and kind of your youth group experience as well. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, my parents, when they moved to Duncan, Oklahoma, they, along with, I guess, a handful of other families, they came together and um, planted a church or maybe my parents joined an existing plant that was already happening. Um, uh, and it was a, a Bible church. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary was kind of blown and going in those days and sending pastors out kind of throughout Texas and Oklahoma. And so um, they were involved in a small church there and have have remained involved uh, to this day. And so I grew up in the church. Uh, it was a Sunday morning. We didn't have Sunday night uh, in earnest. We did occasionally we'd do stuff on Sunday night. Uh, then Wednesday night youth group and um, the adults would have a Bible study or prayer meeting or something. And so church was a big part of my upbringing. My dad was and still is an elder there. Um, and my mom has always just done as much as she can uh, at the church. And there was a youth group as I was coming through. I had a few different youth ministers along the way. And um, and then even, yeah, I, I was involved with another youth group in town, kind of in some of those leaner years where we didn't have enough youth to kind of justify, I think, having a full-time youth minister. I would do stuff with with another youth group in town that some of my friends were involved with at First Baptist uh, in Duncan. Um, there were, there was actually some, uh, regrettably so, there was one youth, one of our youth leaders that uh, I'd, it was just a particular time in my high school where I thought I was too cool for school and mm-hmm. I thought I was cooler than he was. And so I kind of, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't like him. Frankly, I didn't appreciate him for who he was and just that we were different. And uh, so it was one of those times where I was much more involved at another youth group than mine. And um, you know, I actually ended up, I, I bad this guy to my dad and, and, you know, some of the other, in. I don't know. He, he just didn't last very long. I don't know how that sausage was made behind the scenes. And um, I really regretted that. And once I, I think honestly, once the spirit did a work in my life in college, uh, I really got very convicted about that. Um, and I, Facebook had kind of come around at that point. And so I looked him up on Facebook and found him and ended up messaging him and just telling him I was so sorry. Like, obviously I didn't know everything that happened and why he didn't last very long, but I can imagine that, you know, elders got <laughs> elders kid telling daddy about the youth leader uh, didn't help his plight. So mm. um, I really was, I, I was very remorseful of having done that. And um, man, it's just, it makes me, I don't know why I'm now talking about that on a podcast and broadcast mm. the world, but it was, it's a memory that I have that I really, really regret. Mm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. that that's an awesome story. I know that that's hard to, to process, but I mean, I know there are those who are listening and probably when you say, yeah, that you were that student, um, that was too cool for school. Uh, there's every youth minister out there nodding their heads. Up, oh yeah, I've got one of those in my youth group. And so just to, to hear kind of this, this side of that story and to hear how the Lord can work that, you know, as you're dealing with those students in ministry, you have no idea what the Lord is doing, you know, mm-hmm. in that student's heart, but then five, 10, 15 years down the road, what the Lord will do. Um, so just the, the encouragement for perseverance there. And then just how awesome 
that the Holy Spirit is uh, to just continue to work and to continue to till up kind of the soil of our hearts and reveal some things we don't like to to see sometimes and know about. Um, but now that's that's awesome uh, to hear that. Yeah. Um, I did. I also wanted to jump back to um, you meeting your wife um, yeah. and maybe a little more lighthearted uh, than uh, <laughs> the story we just heard, but which yeah. again, good to hear and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, your friend Reed Jones um, said that uh, it, it might have taken you maybe more than one time of asking your Gosh. wife out. And yeah. uh, do, do you want to share a little bit more detail about that? We can edit this out if, yeah. if you don't want no, to. No, 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 that's totally fine. Uh, yeah, this story is, uh, it's widely known. So I had, I had dated a lot of girls through, through college, well, high school too, but at college and then even post-college. Um, and so uh, I, my, actually my RUF minister from OU, when I had moved out to Nashville, uh, I had just broken up with another girl or probably led her on and, and, you know, <laughs> broken her, whatever the broke her heart, whatever the situation was. Um, he had said, Hey, just like move to Nashville and chill out. Don't date anybody. Just like go to your job and learn who you are for a season, which was, that was great advice for me. Um, I didn't follow it necessarily. Uh, actually I, I was enough of a legalist to where I did. I technically didn't ask Sarah out for six months. Um, <laughs> But we started hanging out a few months into my time in Nashville. And uh, yeah, very quickly, I was thinking, dang it, I, this girl's great. I really like her. Um, but the first time we ever spent time together, uh, I had asked her to come over to my house after church one day. We ended up at the same church. And uh, I had asked her to come over and watch 24 because she was watching it on her own. I was watching it on my own. And uh, it was back when Netflix was, you order the DVDs by mail. Oh, yeah. We, we kind of synced up our, our viewing. And so we would watch it uh, periodically as DVDs would come in the mail. But the very first time we ever hung out, I said, I can't ask you out because I can't date anybody for six months, um, which she would later say took off a lot of the pressure of, hmm. of you know, hanging out during those days. But, uh, you know, as sure as can be, once that six month clock ticked, uh, I had just gotten back from a, a Christmas break. I was out in Oklahoma with my family. I came back to Nashville and I went over to her apartment and, and she had kind of been a little distant over the Christmas break. And I might have been a little aggressive in my uh, <laughs> texting and <laughs> trying to connect with her. Maybe uh, I can see that happening. Well, when I showed up at her apartment, I asked her out. Uh, she told me no. And I was, uh, I was utterly confounded because we had, we had really enjoyed being together. And also I was a prideful 24 year old and just couldn't imagine a girl not wanting to go out with me. And <laughs> so uh, that was not the only no I got from her over the subsequent four or five months. I probably, uh, I probably asked her out around 15 times and she would <laughs> not go on a date with me. <laughs> she uh, yeah, just gave me the Heisman and I, well, I would occasionally go on a date with another girl in the midst of that but it inevitably I'd be on these other dates or whatever and think man I just want to go out with Sarah I, I really I liked who she was I liked kind of what she was about and her temperament and disposition and everything but she was not uh, she was not digging on me <laughs> she did not like the goods that I had for sale <laughs> but eventually 
came around. Yeah. Um, 15 dates or 15 requests later, eventually. I broke her, broke her down. No, um, actually I had, after like that 15th ask or the 15th rejection, I had sent her an email, um, you know, welcome to the mid 2000s, uh, sent her an email <laughs> saying that I was done. I wasn't going to ask her out anymore to which she pretty promptly replied. Thanks. So <laughs> I kind of headed off and um, I knew we were going to be around each other some more because we both still lived in Nashville. Um, but she showed up down at a RUF summer conference with some of her friends from Baylor. And, and she came up to me that week and uh, just mentioned to me, which was very unlike her. Sarah's pretty reserved, had, had not really dated a whole lot or anything. So she came up to me that week and, and basically said, hey, I, I've realized that I like you. And um, I'll make a long story a little shorter, but after a couple of weeks after that, uh, we ended up going on our first date and then we were engaged about three months after that. Hmm. Once she saw the light, you, <laughs> it, it, it burned bright. <laughs> All right. And you, you guys, y'all have been married how long now? Uh, we celebrated 15 last May, so 16 this May. Okay. And um, yeah, it's been great. She's uh, She's wonderful. Um, the best parts of me are because of her. Hmm. Awesome. And then four daughters, isn't that correct? Yeah, we have uh, a 12-year-old, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old, and uh, all girls, which is, uh, I grew up with brothers, so this is, everything's new for me, and uh, it's it's wonderful. It is absolutely as loud as it can be. Um, I just, <laughs> I remember growing up, sitting around the dinner table with you know, three teenage boys at some point. And I mean, my mom was just dying for us to talk and just talk about our days or talk about anything. Just, I mean, she would just try to drag information out of us. And I, <laughs> it's hilarious now because I'm an, I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum. I mean, I sit down at dinner. I don't have to say a word uh, because it's just, you know, it's chaos and it's fun and people are talking. And a lot of times we'll play, uh, we play games at dinner, uh, just card games or, or different things. Sometimes we play Clue and hmm. King of Tokyo. and lots. It's a lot of fun. It, my wife uh, brought that idea into our marriage and family. It's been, I think it's one of those things that in retrospect, we'll look back and say, it's probably one of the most significant things we did and that we just kind of happened into. It wasn't mm -hmm. a strategic move to create this intense family bonding, but it's just really fun. And I mean, it's, um, it, yeah, dinners are, are loud and fun and kind of crazy. That's awesome. So maybe talk just a little bit more about that. I mean, are you saying pretty much every family meal you're, you're playing some kind of a game or is this dinners you're, you're playing yeah. some kind of game? Yeah. So I, I travel uh, a good bit right now with uh, my current job. So um, when I am home, uh, we, we, yeah, we try to go around the dinner table as much as we can. And our kids aren't quite at the age where um, they don't have a ton going on in the evenings. There's, there's some, and I imagine that that'll increase as they, get older, but so family dinners are still pretty, uh, pretty prevalent for us. And when I'm in town and even when I'm out of town, they'll, they'll play their own games and stuff. Um, but yeah, we do it. And it's, it's just great. I mean, it's, it, it provides its smile, it's laughter. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's not just sitting around inevitably asking questions that may end up with shorter answers. Again, it's such an antithesis to what I grew up with that I'm just, I feel like I'm along for the ride uh, having these girls that just 
talk and laugh and it's fun. I mean, man, I absolutely, I love my girls. I love having girls. People ask me if I wish I had a son. I'm like, heck no, this is, <laughs> this is great. And uh, so, yeah, it's really yeah. sweet. That's, that's really cool. Um, and something too, I know we, we've talked a little bit about this and um, is uh, screen time in the house. Uh, we've had some, some conversations. We yeah. have some, some days in our family where we just are, Hey, let's not get on screens. Let's just kind of be together, get away from them. Uh, we also use screens plenty of times. So we aren't yep. saying screens are the devil by any chance, but, uh, but I know you, you've, you've got some similar policies in your house. Do you mind sharing those? Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say as far as kind of, uh, you know, using screens for fun and, and pleasure, um, we, during the week, uh, so pretty much Monday through well, through Thursday at night, Friday afternoon, we allow them to, but Monday through Thursday, or we just don't let them get on screens. Um, part of that is so that they'll, if they have homework and stuff, they can stay focused on that and not have, and not rush through it to get to, you know, so they can watch a movie or watch Netflix or whatever. Also, I don't know, it, it, we're trying to push back on some of the, just the broader stuff of, um, you know, the ubiquity of screens and, in Personally, Sarah and I know the, not just the temptation of it, but the gravity of it. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. the addictiveness of it is real and it's for, for young brains that are unformed and don't really know how to self-regulate and all of that stuff. Um, it's, we, we just don't want to put our daughters in a compromised position on that front. Um, and that's not even to mention all the, the social pressure that comes with it and uh, how that can begin to form them socially. So um, you know, at this stage, we're pretty comfortable with what we do. And then, like I said, Fridays and Saturdays are pretty wide open, um, uh, you know, through the evening watching movies or a lot of times do family movie nights, Friday nights and Saturday after they do chores or if they have homework, um, then we'll let them get on the iPad or watch, you know, watch movies, whatever it may be. Um, Sundays, we, we try to guard Sundays too. Just it's, uh, ideally it's a day that I'm not working and I'm trying to, you know, rest and be around and be present in a way that I can't be most other days. So we try to go he heavy on family togetherness and obviously worshiping in the morning. And uh, we host a community group at our house from church starting about 445 Sunday evenings and our oldest is a youth group. So there's just plenty of other stuff going that day. We try to have it kind of be max relational. So, um, that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, our 12 year old, she doesn't have a phone yet. I mean, she's asking for it and it's hard. Every parent that's been faced with that kind of coming of age stuff. And again, just the ubiquity of it um, and, and all the friends having it and trying to figure out how are we going to do this? What's the best way? Uh, it's, e it's easiest just to instinctively say no <laughs> to everything because of, I mean, frankly, because of fear, uh, but also, uh, finances, like, dang, this stuff's expensive. And, um, but also wanted to protect her and, and, um, wanting to try to get out ahead of this and, and do what's best by her and serve her in ways that, uh, she doesn't necessarily, she doesn't experience it uh, as us serving her and loving her, but, you know, we're trying to ask her to, to buy into the bigger picture of the ways we've loved her and, you know, asking her to trust us. We're not claiming to be infallible parents, but like, Hey, we really are we're trying to set you up to succeed, uh, in the bigger picture here. So mm -hmm. thankfully she's a, our oldest North is she's wonderful. And, and 
she seems to really trust us. Um, it's not that everything's always easy or perfect, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, she's a she's a really sweet daughter. So, hmm. now, th thank you for sharing that. It is it's something. I mean, we just mentioned screens and youth workers and parents that are listening. Just yeah, okay, this is such an issue. I mean, this is where life occurs. Yeah, you know, um, and so yeah, trying to process that. I think there's just there's so much wisdom and taking a break from it. I mean, just for the addictive tendencies alone, um, if something has that much power uh, to lead to addiction, to remove it completely is definitely a, a help. And so just to, to encourage you in that and those listening who are, who are wrestling with that, I mean, it's it's definitely something uh, we, we need to continue to process, not something we'll ever arrive at. I mean, as you just said, you aren't perfect parents. We're not perfect parents. We're all in the trenches together trying to figure this out. And I just think there's, there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, Brent, Brent, I wanted to, to transition talking about RUF a little bit, and um, you're still in your current role as RUF area coordinator, uh, but you will be, I think, sometime in May, and is that correct, coming on? You're, yeah, you're going to be my boss, so I should yeah. probably know when that starts. <laughs> yeah, man, um, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, something we've had people share on this podcast before is just processing a change of a call. Um, I think it's really helpful uh, to, to, to hear kind of how people go through that process where, okay, the Lord has called us somewhere and we serve for a period of time, however long that may be. And then all of a sudden we, we sense, okay, the Lord's doing something different here. The Lord's kind of changing my heart. And so maybe just talk to us a little bit about how you processed um, this sense of a change in a call from RUF to, to come on uh, with RYM from yeah. you know, the people you talk to, mentors in your life, just personal processing, uh, however, uh, that may be helpful. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so like I said, my first call out of seminary was to be a campus minister, and uh, I, I loved that work uh, on campus for eight years, and it really, I tell people all the time, and even in my current role, I do a lot of recruiting of seminary students, and uh, we do assessment centers where we're helping guys and, and couples, if they're married, come and, and conceptualize what it might look like to be a campus minister and some of the unique opportunities of that and the challenges of that. Uh, but it is a, it's a really, I, I would tell anybody, it's a great job for guys coming out of seminary who are, who A, love college students, because you can't, I mean, you have to love college students in the, in the wackiness of what that age of life is. And it's a lot of, you know, who am I, what's happening in the world, where do I fit in the big picture and all that kind of stuff. So it's a high, uh, it's a time of high processing uh, for people. So it can, it can burn pretty hot and it can, it can be pretty tough at times, but um, the joys of being on campus are, are manifold. They're, um, you're getting to, to be with students and those big questions and they're asking big questions. They're considering life uh, at a real quick pace. Uh, also, as a young pastor, if you if you have an established group on campus, you're getting to oppor the opportunity to do, uh, you know, preach sermons and kind of find your voice in that way and go through some of the uh, process of just doing that week in, week out, which is very, very helpful. Um, and then lead Bible studies, small groups, evangelism, discipleship, leadership training, fundraising. If you have interns, you're a boss and kind of managing a staff. Uh, I mean, there's so many aspects of that job. It's, it, it teaches you a lot about a lot of different aspects of ministry. So uh, I loved that. And then after a time, uh, eight years, I started just kind of feeling the itch to do something different. Um, Tulsa University of Tulsa is a wonderful 
campus. It's a small campus. It's like uh, 2,800 undergrad when I was there. And I just kind of got to the point where I thought, you know, I think I've done what I can do here and to started to be curious about what might be next and um, prayed uh, a good bit before that last year. And uh, the opportunity came open for me to, to move in uh, to this area coordinator role. And it's a role that I had seen, you know, I had an area coordinator when I was a campus minister and his name was Keith Berger and he loved me and my wife well, and, and he shepherded us, but also was, you know, a supervisor and helped us. I uh, called him a lot with questions about different things and kind of a troubleshooter and an encourager and a lot of different things. And I had just seen through the years that how valuable that position was and um, had thought if there was an opening or an opportunity for me to do it, then I'd love to do it. And um, so I did. I got the opportunity to do that. Um, I would say out of the gate, I, I knew that I knew it was a high travel job because I had seen Keith's travel. And I mean, it's just it's as advertised. It's a lot of different stuff. Um, so I came in. And I remember saying in, in the, one of the interviews I had for it um, that I was probably like a four to five year guy in that job because we had just had a new baby, our fourth. And I thought, and so, you know, had several others too, kids at that point. I just thought, I don't, I don't want to do this long-term because I, I don't want to miss all of their childhood. Um, it was an important enough calling to, to commit to it and see that there was going to be some costs, but I really did think the Lord was leading us that way. Um, but also recognize that I would feel the shelf life uh, at some point. And so um, I, all of that became true. It was a job that I did love and that I do love, and I still think it's really important and valuable. Um, most campus ministers would talk about the role that an area coordinator has played in their life and in their young ministry you know, career, so to speak. Um, but also I began to, I, I began to feel it on the home front a lot. And um it's interesting because uh, even as our kids got older, uh, some of the things on the home front got easier. I mean, it's not you're not changing diapers anymore and that kind of stuff. But now you you kind of age up and some of the you know the junior high problems or, or issues that are facing our oldest and we're going to have another junior higher next year. So I just I wanted to be there for it. Um, I know it's going to be hard, like but I also like I said earlier, it's our daughters are a joy. And um, I really I knew that if I got down the road. Uh, and continued to be gone as much as I've been gone that I would I'd probably personally regret that and just I mean you hear everybody talking about how fast it goes and I just I think the Lord gave me some perspective to listen to them and say I I don't want to miss it all mm -hmm. so um, yeah I, I'm looking forward to it and then um, I had uh, my wife and I began kind of praying last summer um, about what might be next uh, as we headed into my fourth year of doing this job and um, I had been talking to some different churches, uh, had been approached about a few things, uh, applying for some different um, church roles, some, a couple senior jobs, uh, a church planning opportunity, an executive pastor opportunity, actually a few of those. Um, anyway, some, just some disparate things. And uh, then I got approached by the board or the search committee of the board for RYM, um, who had gotten my name. Uh, actually someone on the board knew me and, and they asked me if I would consider it. And I mean, this was a true, like out of left field kind of thing. Uh, I had known RYM some, I had not been involved in RYM 
Um, I kind of, I knew about the conferences and some different things like that, but as I've now learned, uh, there's quite a bit more to RAM than I knew at that time. So it's been really fun for me to go through the, the interview process and to learn more from the board. And then having now uh, gotten to know some of y'all on staff and learned more of what's happening uh, in RYM and, and getting to go at least to the first day of YLT and see kind of the introduction to what was going to be happening that week was uh, was really exciting. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for the experiences I've had and also really thankful to the Lord for providing this new uh, this new call and opportunity, uh, I think to, um, to get to be home more, the summers are crazy, but, um, are, we're kind of gearing up to go do it all as a family together, at least for this first, <laughs> this first go around. And we're going to, we're going to try to hit all the different six conferences and, um, it'll be a whirlwind, but it's something we're, uh, we're looking forward to together. So. Yeah, we're, we're excited as a staff. I mean, as you said, you were, at youth leader training, um, and got to the, the week weekend prior to that, just be together as a staff and then have you there that first day. Uh, we're looking forward to this summer as you dive in head first, uh, with, <laughs> with the rest of us. Um, look, we're, we're about to close this out, but I'd love to kind of give you just a final word, um, speaking to, to families that are listening, speaking to youth workers, just some of your thoughts about coming on staff with RYM, some of your excitement. I know you've kind of shared some of this already, but just kind of a, a final word as we close things out. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's been really neat as I, like I said, as I was interviewing with the board through the fall and ultimately as it kind of approached the decision point uh, at the end of December, um, I, one thing that was happening inside of me was as I began to hear more and more about what RYM was doing and about the board's vision for uh, going forward and really just what they were hoping that the new executive director would be and do. Um, I, it's as clear of a call for me as I've had to date. Um, I looked at the job description and, and then again, interacted with them over that through a number of different interviews. Uh, I began to really think, man, Lord, this is, this is how you've made me. Um, I've always kind of thought of myself as a I, I kind of have a strange gift mix for a, you know, a quote unquote pastor, an ordained pastor, which I am. Uh, I also, I really value and appreciate organizational health and, um, you know, administrative, have, have some administrative gifts and things like that. I'm, I'm comfortable in the financial realm because of, I think, just some of my experience with the bank and uh, doing a lot of work there. And then as I thought about my own kids coming into the junior high and kind of aging up into youth work, I just thought, or I mean, to youth ministry, I just thought, you know, the importance of, of youth work and, and what youth leaders are doing around the country and in our own local church here in Baton Rouge, it just really matters. I know it's, I kind of have known it's mattered conceptually, but now it's really mattering personally. And so to, to get to have the opportunity to uh, invest in this world vocationally now is incredibly exciting. Uh, and it's, it's really important. I've said for a long time in my capacity with RUF that, you know, college is that age of that stage of life where, where everybody's asking the big questions and trying to figure out life on their own. And I just think I've become more and more convinced that, um, you know, as the world is, is kind of doing its thing and, and trying to figure out uh, how people uh, should or shouldn't act or who they should or shouldn't be, I think some of those big questions are being thrust further and further uh, down uh, on younger people. And so 
um, you know, whether that's matters of sexuality or uh, just being and how to conceptualize of their own kind of place in this world. Um, I, I think youth workers have an incredibly tall task, um, but with, with a tall task comes immense opportunity uh, to speak the gospel uh, into these uh, young people's lives and to help them navigate alongside their parents and the church, uh, navigate these issues of, of being and of identity and you know, all these big topics that uh, are being uh, thrust upon us. So uh, I've just been, been really excited about it. Um, I can't wait to get started. I, I must wait to get started because I have a very full-time job right now, but um, I'm looking forward to everything I get to learn uh, in being around y'all as a staff and at the conferences this summer and the trainings in the future. So I uh, hope to spend a good bit of time learning uh, just the ways of RYM before uh, we figure out what we're going to do going in the future. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. We're, we're excited to, uh, we're excited to, to get you on in a full-time capacity uh, before too long. And I know those who are listening to this podcast, many of you will be with us at our summer conferences. And so you'll get to Lord willing meet Brent and his family yeah. uh, in person. Um, so Brent, look, it's been great just getting to sit down and hear your story a little bit here, how the Lord has, has worked. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on today. You bet. Thanks, John. It's great being with you. Without money, oh, come and feast without.